Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the ladder of divine ascent. And we're picking up uh, once again with step number one on renunciation of the world. And uh, if you remember, just to to recap that uh, the first three steps are all about the initial break uh, from the world that a a monk in particular would be be making. And uh, if uh, and remember that John was writing this work initially for a neighboring monastery at the request of its abbot in order to teach them about the interior life and the struggle with the passions. And, uh, and so uh, this, these first three really f- focus upon you know, our experience of the world and how it is that we order things, and especially in regards to what we desire the most and having God at the center of our life. And so certainly everything that John says applies to us as well. Uh, if not life in the monastery, we certainly are clinging to God as uh, the pearl of great price, if you will. Uh, and uh, tonight we're picking up at the bottom of page 57. If you're following along in the text, it's a 2012 translation of the latter from Holy Transfiguration Monastery. And again, we're on number 19 at the bottom of the page. He writes, let no one by appealing to the weight and multitude of his sins, say that he's unworthy of the monastic vow and for love of pleasure, disparage himself, excusing himself with excuses in his sins. Where there is much corruption, considerable treatment is needed to draw out all the impurity. The healthy do not go to the hospital. So a very important little paragraph here uh, that, you know, oftentimes because of our past, uh, we will hesitate to to take a step forward uh, in the spiritual life or towards a particular vocation. And uh, because of the the weight and the burden of our past sins, there will be a hesitancy uh, to step forward. But I think what John puts his finger on here is that this can become an excuse for us uh, in the sense of entering into the ascetical life and seeking the healing that it brings. 
that it can impede our actually being healed by the grace of God because it prevents us from stepping in to the ascetical life at all. And he uses the word excuse here. And uh, we've talked a little bit about this in the past and even its connection to the gospel and those who wanted to delay following Christ when he uh, tells them, come follow me. And they begin, the gospel says, to make excuses. And they were all valid, you know, that one had just uh, recently been married and the other bought a farm. And I forget what the third, third is. And, uh, but the, the phrase is that they all made excuses. And in the Latin, it's ex causa, free from the charge. It's to free oneself from the charge. And from, so to free ourselves from the call uh, to live out our Christian vocation, the call to holiness, uh, as well to uh, struggle with our sins and our passions. And so John is saying here that we are not to use our past, whatever it might have been, as an excuse not to enter into the life that God has called us to, whether it's the, the life in a monastery or vocation to marriage, or simply embracing our call to holiness as Christian men and women, uh, that we, we don't want anything to impede us to entering into the struggle fully and with full fervor. And this will come up again and again throughout this text as well, that we want to engage in the spiritual life, adding fervor to fervor and desire to desire, love to love. And in order that we, we might keep ourselves moving forward and not, might not become discouraged in the spiritual battle. So if you're already beginning to make excuses and finding reasons why one would not want to enter into this way of life, and in this case, the monastic life, then one is certainly either not going to make the step at all or become discouraged very quickly. And if you remember, I'd mentioned that some of the, the icons depicting the ladder often will show a monk sitting on the bottom rung, facing outwards, contemplating whether or not he is willing to begin this ascent. And, uh, and so John you know, seeks in these early steps to address this, that there are things that uh, can make us enter into the struggle half-heartedly and fearful, timidly, whereas we, as we'll see in the coming paragraphs, he wants us to be the resolute fighter, the plucky fighter. So understanding who it is, who it is that we're fighting against, not only our own passions and our, our weakness, but also the evil one who seeks to trip us up in the spiritual, spiritual battle. So similarly here, to let go of any excuse that might uh, give us pause uh, to engage in the ascetical life and, uh, or that we would use as a means of avoiding the hardship of it. And John has not hidden the fact that this is a very difficult path that we tread as Christian men and women, that the struggles with the passions is no light thing nor to develop a kind of constancy in the life of prayer, that it, there is a great discipline to it. And so he wants us to have uh, great clarity here. So 58, if an earthly king, sort of carrying along on this theme, if an earthly king were to call us and to request us to serve in his presence, we should not delay for other orders. We should not make excuses, but we should leave everything and eagerly go to him. Let us then be on the alert, 
lest when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and God of Gods calls us to this heavenly office, we beg off out of sloth and cowardice and find ourselves without excuse at the last judgment. It is possible to walk even when tied with the fetters of worldly affairs and iron cares, but only with difficulty. For even those who have iron chains on their feet can often walk, but they are continually stumbling and getting hurt. An unmarried man who is only tied to the world by business affairs is like one who has fetters on his hands. And therefore, when he wishes to hasten to the monastic life, he has nothing to hinder him. Uh, but the married man is like one who is bound hand and foot. So when he wants to run, he cannot. Now, he's going to follow up in talking about marriage here before you all get in a twist about what he's saying here. But certainly he's speaking again uh, to monks and in the sense of the, the freedom that they have to dedicate all of their energy and attention to the pursuit of the ascetic life, that this is the focus and primary focus of making this decision in their life uh, to give themselves over wholeheartedly. And so this is the, really the main point that why would you enter into the monastic life if your intent is not to enter into it fully? Why would you fetter yourself in any way, whether it's psychologically by coming up with excuses or in, in any other way uh, that would keep you from running swiftly uh, in the race as it were? And, uh, and so he, he wants us, and I think this would be true in our day-to-day -day life in the world, to simplify our life, understanding that asceticism uh, is an essential part of the Christian life. And that, as we've said so many times before, that Christianity is an ascetical religion. And so Christ our Christian life should be distinctive in its shape and form, in the sense that we hold on and should hold on to a kind of simplicity, clarity of focus, that we don't uh, needlessly complicate our lives or, or weigh ourselves down with things that demand our attention in an unnatural way. That, uh, you know, certainly the married life and having children are going to come with certain responsibilities and that for an individual is a path to sanctity. But I think we all know living in the world, whether married and with children or not, or single, that we can uh, make our lives so complicated and, uh, and we can live at such a frenetic pace that we put ourselves in shackles in exactly the way that John describes here that makes it hard for us to run swiftly or to be attentive to the spiritual life as the thing that gives shape and forms our identity as a whole. And uh, I think this is a, particular, a particularly difficult challenge in our day and age. And you know, certainly talking to a lot of people over time, the, one of the constant refrains is that uh, I don't have time for prayer or because of this in my schedule or these demands, I've, I had to let go of, of my time for prayer or I haven't been praying. And, uh, and, you know, certainly not to be a critic in that regard, but I think it is something that plagues us in our day and prevents us from viewing uh, our relationship with God and the life of prayer 
as the thing that shapes our identity, that our life begins and, and all that we do begins and ends with God, and that that relationship should shape and form all that we do, whatever work we are involved in, or again, whatever our particular vocation might be. And so, uh, you know, you know, surpassing what John says here, uh, in, in the sense that we would apply to our life in the world, I think what he's saying is essential for us as well. And, uh, you know, as always, he uses these very clear examples that if called by a king or, uh, you know, a military leader, if you will, at some point, we would, without haste, respond to that call uh, to be able to do whatever we need to do in obedience, that we would never delay uh, the call of someone who has that authority over us. Uh, and, and yet with God, that we are often willing to, you know, push him off to the margins of our life. We'll tend to the things of, of the kingdom and the things of God when the rest of our schedule is clear. And, you know, I've often said before that I think we have to be careful uh, about not placing our prayer life and spiritual life on par with everything else in our day-to-day -day schedule, as if it is of equal weight and importance. And I think only when we have that clarity can our spiritual life begin to take on the shape and form that God desires for us, rather than what seems in accord with our own judgment and reason. Robin Greco. Uh, yeah, real quick. I like how he um, he puts that example as, you know, an, if an earthly king were to call mm -hmm. us. Right. And that helps me because Christ is my king. Right. And sometimes I think I, for myself, I forget to look at him that way. Mm -hmm. He is my king. So what he wills needs to come first, just like an earthly king. You would do what he wants you to do first before anything else. So right. for me, that that really, really helps me, mm -hmm. uh, really helps. So I just thought I'd comment on that. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it frames and John frames, uh, especially in these first three steps, uh, what, what, what our life is to look like, like and where the ascetic life begins to flourish. And it's only when we have this kind of clarity about our own identity and dignity, but a clarity about the, the nature of the spiritual struggle itself can uh, we order things in such a way that we understand that we are responding to the, the most important call in our life. And so there should be, you know, every day a kind of urgency, uh, a kind of urgent longing within the heart that arises to attend to the will of God. I think the Psalms mention, you know, about servants having their hand, their eyes upon the hand of their mistress or their master, you know, to always be attentive to uh, when one is being beckoned. And uh, I think similarly for us, that we would develop that kind of sensitivity of mind and especially of heart uh, to the, the movements of God within our life when he's calling us to respond. And it's not only to those times of prayer, but again, I think to those that he brings into our, our lives 
and uh, those who he's calling us to serve, that we would always be attentive to the demands of love that come to us from our, as Robin said, from our, our King. Deborah, is that your hand going up? Okay. Is removing prayer time and saying that we are too busy a sign of spiritual warfare or just allowing our will to win? I think it can be both, you know, that it can be evidence. And I think this is where confession and spiritual direction can be helpful. It can be evidence of neglect and laziness on our part, or it can be a spiritual battle where we are tempted to value and weigh things of, as having greater import for us than the life of prayer. Uh, to think that prayer is an obstacle to our fulfilling the, the demands of our day-to-day -day life. And it's interesting living in a university setting. And you know, some of the universities are very demanding in terms of workload, Carnegie Mellon in, in particular, uh, the students rarely have an opportunity to, to breathe. And uh, you know, there is this sense that uh, the, the work level, so things get out of balance. And I think this is what universities often don't see that there's more to the formation of the human person than simply the intellect. And when they, they you know, when there's sort of a glory in driving students to their limits on that level, I think they lose sight of that fact and the students lose sight of it. And so their lives become unbalanced. And, uh, and so the temptation there, again, responding to, to Deborah, is that, you know, to form our identity so much upon how well we do academically, for example, as a student, that it, it becomes a source of fear and anxiety for us. Uh, and so strong that it then pushes everything out, no matter what value it has for us. And it's interesting, I, I think most people are driven by fear, that that's the powerful motivator for them, that I have to get this work done to get this grade and to excel in this course, in order that eventually I might not only pass the semester, but I might get the job that I would want in the future, that everything begins to be shaped by this kind of reality. And this often begins very early on uh, in a, a person's life, sometimes from you know, the, the grade school on even. And uh, what I've seen take place in the life of students and even in my own life as a student early on uh, was the sense that if I used that time for prayer, it would pull away uh, from my work or my focus on my work. And I think the opposite is true. I think when we are entering into that relationship with God and that our life is ordered toward him, then anxiety flees the heart and we gain a kind of clarity of vision about what is of importance and what has value, what is good enough in terms of the work, but also absent that anxiety, I think we're able to enter into the work with a kind of clarity and peace where we make our way through it uh, more quickly, not because we're rushing, uh, but because we are free from carrying the load of our own fears and our own anxieties. And so you hear of students uh, staying up all night repeatedly, you know, for a week on end and, you know, sleeping maybe an hour here and there when they pass out, basically. And, but most of the time that's un, un, unneeded. I never did an all-nighter 
as a student, no matter what level of study I found myself in. And, you know, part of the reason for doing that is a lack of order. You know, there can be a disorder on multiple levels for students, but I think spiritually, I think uh, what I was talking about there about being driven by fear, it does steal a lot from us. And, you know, I knew a PhD student, PhD student now who's teaching in London at the University of London, and he was the most joyful character of all and came to daily mass and, you know, was engaged in Eucharistic adoration and had a social life. And, but his life was ordered in such a way that there was this joyfulness about him. He didn't work any less hard than anybody else, uh, but was, you know, had a kind of freedom about it. And in fact, I think when somebody's identity is clearly rooted in God, and when one sees that work is given to oneself by God, then one even takes it up with a greater zeal. You know, the procrastination that often takes place in our work or in studies is often rooted in fear, because those who are driven by fear and anxiety tend to put things off. That's just, it's one of their defense mechanisms. But the, the trouble is, is they, they put it off to the last moment, and then they find their anxiety and fear tripled because they're trying to cram everything in to get all that they need done. Whereas the person who's really free, you know, is able to engage in the, their work at this steady pace and to order their life again in a right way. And I, I know that was a pretty long digression, but I think this imbalance that we find in our life, the lack of simplicity, the complexity that we often add from year to year is really problematic in terms of the, the spiritual life. And if there's one thing about the monastic life, that there is a particular order with which they work. They work hard, but they're not necessarily efficient from the worldly perspective or as productive as the, the world would, would you know, want to be. And uh, in past groups, I've told this little story about a uh, trip to a Trappist monastery. And one of the monks sort of joking about the fact that the other monks had been laughing at him uh, because he was painting a ceiling. And he had gotten down to the last little four by four square in the ceiling and the bell rang for prayer. And so he had to drop you know, his brushes, clean up and get to prayer. But it was the room that they filed through to the refectory for their meal. And so they see this, you know, incomplete ceiling and laughing at him. And so, you know, but it's rightly ordered. You know, it's not that he was not working hard, but he understood that really life is about communion and union with God and with others. And the moment that we allow something like work to push all of that out to the background, profound distortions come in. And it's really hard in the West in particular. I remember hearing this story about Mother Teresa, her saying that sometimes in her country, that oftentimes at lunch, people would go out and they would sit under a tree and there would be all smiles and we'd be talking and we'd be out there for a couple hours. And in the, in the West, they would get fired and it would be seen as a kind of laziness. Uh, but in, in her culture, she said, you know, this is the way that they would engage each other. This was a kind of intimacy. And often what was a very hard and difficult life 
they carried with it a lot of poverty, yet there was this enormous joy that people often had in and through their connection with others. And we work like dogs, but are probably less happy and have less communication with one another than what she was describing there. Okay, Kathy Murphy. You have time, okay, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just a quick comment um, uh, to kind of like go along with what you're saying. I recently read a study that looked at people who were the least stressed in life. Mm -hmm. um, and they identified those people who were committed to prayer and religion um, and ordered their life around that um, and found them to be the least stressed in life. Sadly, they also found the same to be true for people who are committed atheists. Mm -hmm. um, but it really kind of speaks for me to the fact that that, that in-between struggle of mm -hmm. not committing um, and not ordering your life that way causes more stress for you mm -hmm. than making that decision to commit and order your life around God. Right. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I think work becomes the modern man's asceticism, you know, and it becomes this defense mechanism uh, that gives us a sense that there's purpose and meaning to our life. And the more distant we become from God, uh, then I think the more tendency that we have to place other things in that, in that void that exists there. And even asceticism can become this kind of defense mechanism too. And we've talked about this before, how careful we have to be not to reduce our life simply to these external practices because they can be embraced and practiced in fear and anxiety too rather than you know, having it as their origin, love and the desire for love and their end being love as well. Uh, that if they're simply a defense mechanism that we're filled with panic and anxiety because of our particular passions and our sins and uh, the, you know, what that does to our identity, that we can gravitate towards asceticism simply to gain control a sense of control over ourselves, but it's not necessarily going to lead to joy. And this is why what's so interesting about John that we've already have seen in him, the use of the language of desire, but also stressing that the, the asceticism has to lead to joy in an individual's life. And if it doesn't over the course of their life, an individual is to be pitied that uh, on some level, the asceticism is misdirected if it does not bear the fruit of the freedom and the joy of the kingdom. Okay. So we we'll move on to the next paragraph. This is 21 on page 58. Some people living carelessly in the world have asked me, we have wives and are beset with social cares, and how can we lead the solitary life? I replied to them, do all the good you can, do not speak evil of anyone, do not steal from anyone, do not lie to anyone, do not be arrogant towards anyone, do not hate anyone, do not be absent from the divine services, be compassionate to the needy, do not offend anyone, do not wreck another man's domestic happiness, and be content with what your wives can give you. If you behave in this way, you will not be far from the kingdom of heaven. 
So basically, live the gospel, <laughs> he tells them, and, and, to and to live it fully, that the monastic life, and even though he's not, he's writing for monastics life here, monastics here, uh, in turning his attention to those living in the world, that the call to holiness is no less. That if you, if you live your life in this way, you know, guided by love, that you see the dignity of, of the other, you protect the dignity of others, you are satisfied with what you have in life, and don't be coveted, become covetous, uh, then there is a kind of freedom that you will have, and you'll not be, be far from the kingdom in that regard. Any thoughts or, or comments about this particular paragraph? So it's a curious one that even though he's not writing for, you know, those living in the world at, at this point, that he does address it. Ambrose. Yeah, I just don't know if you know why he specifically says carelessly living, you know, like I think it could apply to all of us, whether we're careless or not. <laughs> That's right. And because I think was, there are times that we bind ourselves, we shackle ourselves. And uh, so those living in the world are, are kept from living the life that he puts forward here in this paragraph by carelessly entering into their station of life without understanding their, their call to holiness as well. And I think this is what I've had been circling around, that we often will shackle ourselves in so many different ways that we do make it hard to, to run. While we're not called to live the solitary life we can impede ourselves from even doing all the things that he puts forward in this simple paragraph and by you know what he puts forward is by no means uh a minimalist view uh of life you know not to be arrogant and you know not to diminish others not to hate anyone not to be absent from the divine services so you know one is engaging in one's life fully and seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God. So just a, a little reminder, we, we have set up a, a, a new process here and we're still in the, uh, the beginning stages of it, just to help with the flow of things a little bit. If you can type out your question when you, and then when you put, put your hand up and then hit enter. So it sends it to me. We found that it really does focus the questions pretty clearly. And again, you know, if you have a follow up or I'm not catching what you're saying, you know, we'll open it up. I don't wanna be rigid about things here, but it does help. Carol, my paper. In living the gospel, how do you not offend people? Uh, I don't, I don't know if, oh, oh, okay, I see what you're saying, because he says, are you talking about this previous paragraph? That's right, do not offend anyone. Well, there are a lot of ways that we offend people. You know, certainly there is an aspect of the gospel that is always going to be a stumbling block to the world. And uh, the, the teachings of the gospel are going to be offensive. And uh, that's inevitable, and Christ tells us as much you will be hated all because of uh because of my name and for my sake uh but i think what john is speaking of here is that we don't offend anybody through our lack of charity 
and or our lack of mercy that we don't lose sight of the dignity of the other person even no matter how they would treat us and you know christians are uh, not slackers when it comes to offending people in our day and age i mean uh if you're online even for a little bit and look at the kinds of conversations that exist uh there's almost a delight in doing so and so there should be a kind of gentleness and tenderness with which we engage others that is really reflective of christ that you know when people encounter us there should be uh you know an experience uh, of love and care and this capacity to to listen to the other not to lose sight of the other person in order to make a certain point uh and so we would not want to offend in that regard and i think even with people that we know we can have a tendency of doing doing that we can be agenda driven even if that agenda is a good one and we end up losing sight of the person that we're engaging in order to forward that and you know we've talked a little bit about that in the past about being project driven or program driven within the life of the church and sometimes we aren't thinking deeply enough in terms of you know what it is that we are called to bear witness to within the world and how it is that we bear witness to it as well and if the, our message gets lost because we are imitating the world so much uh and christ gets lost then we become offensive ourselves. We were simply adding to the noise of the world. We can become a source of irritation simply because we are talking nonstop about religion and even about Christianity, but we are talking at people or talking down to them or past them and not really in seeking to engage them where they are. And, you know, I think, you know, so often you hear from some of these modern elders that, you know, if the gospel were lost in, their, in, in its entirety, that people should be able to grasp Christ, Christianity by what they encounter in and through you and how you engage them. And, you know, this speaks of something profound in terms of our interiorization of, of the gospel itself. That it, how deeply it is to shape us so that we aren't simply talking about something or talking about Jesus, but in our very bearing and the way that we engage the other person, that we bear witness to him in the most personal fashion. And I think this is often lost. And certainly it has been lost in the modern world. I mean, the church seems predatory to many people in our day and age or focused upon money, you know, or whatever it might be. It har hardly seems, I think, to many in the world uh, as, as though it's, you know, proclaiming love. You know, when the view of the first Christians was see how they love one another, I think that image of Christianity has been largely lost. We often seem like hucksters you know, in the world that we're selling something rather than that we're, we're, we're living it, that we've become new beings and that we're bearing witness to that reality. Ricardo. Yeah, 
It will not be far from the kingdom of heaven. It has an interesting ring to it. Not far, uh, see, not far, but not yet in the kingdom. I, am I correct to interpret the list in this paragraph as the starting point? Is there another step that Climacus is not mentioning here along with line, along the lines of the invitation, yes, to Jesus, the young rich man, if you want to be perfect? Absolutely. And I was thinking about that as well. And I think John is drawing specifically from that passage within the gospel, the rich young, young man who lives this life uh, that is virtuous and the Lord looks upon him with love and uh, and he's told he's not far from the kingdom, which is high praise in the sense of the goodness of the man. But what takes us from goodness and uh, even high virtue or natural virtue that's been perfected is this abandonment to Christ. You know, come follow me. And, you know, whether we are live in the world and are married or living in a monastery, it is something far more interior. The, there's abandonment of self-will, of ego, where we give our hearts truly over to Christ and allow him to guide and direct us where he would take us. And that is something that we often hold back in, in the sense of our own, own will, that to be conformed to Christ is to long like him, uh, to do the will of the Father, that obedience and love are very much tied together. And uh, uh, in some reading that I've been doing here recently, and uh, was it with Newman's, our last Newman group? Uh, I know it was the Evergatinos on Monday, that there was this very strong connection between the two, that obedience is something that we should love, because it becomes the very vehicle that draws us to Christ and draws us into intimacy with him. It's not a kind of slavishness, but rather uh, is something that leads us to intimacy, that Christ is revealing his own mind and heart to us. And in love, we seek to respond and take that up and embrace it. And so it's not simply being commanded by somebody rolling over us, but it's the call of love itself. And so even living what John says here in this paragraph for those in the world and living it well bring, makes them not far from the kingdom. But there is, I think, this additional step where, you know, to, in all honesty, he would see the monastics as having taken that in the sense of letting go of their own will and entering into the monster that they, would forsake everything within the world to give themselves over to Christ fully. And even then, I think John is pretty clear in saying that, you know, if not everyone is, who is baptized is saved, not everyone who ends up, who enters into the monastic life is going to be either. So it's no, no guarantee, but I think he sees it as a kind of reflection of this uh, leaving all to follow Christ. And so it mirrors what we hear in the gospel perfectly. Now, I think there's certainly an argument to be made. You know, I think as we broaden out our view of, you know, this universal call to holiness, 
And, uh, you know, for those who enter into the married life, that the capacity to set aside self-will by the grace of God is, is there. And I think from John's perspective, there are so many things that can enter into that that can shackle us, that we just by the nature of where we live and work and the world in which we live, that there are many things that can pull our attention away, even from our fundamental vocation. And we see this happen in marriage, that often the, the focus is lost. Whereas I think for John, you know, those who enter into the life of solitude or a monastery, you know, that, that focus is, is kept clear because they've cut out of their life so many of the different things that typically would shackle us. They've given up all worldly goods and, you know, they've left, it, they've left the world. And so anything that would distract them. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, 22. Let us charge into the good fight with joy and love without being afraid of our enemies. Though unseen themselves, they can look at the face of our soul. And if they see it altered by fear, they take up arms against us all the more fiercely. For the cunning creatures have observed that we are scared. So let us take up arms against them courageously. No one will fight with a resolute fighter. I love this paragraph. And it's one, you know, when first reading John, it was one that jumped off the page at me. And, you know, because, you know, if, if there was a patron saint of anxiety, I think I'd be your man if, I'm ever, if I was ever canonized. He's the patron saint of anxiety. Uh, because growing up, you know, I think my experience of the world around me even was such that there was an uneasiness. And so when you hear somebody like John telling you that the living this life fully uh, is a call to live without anxiety. In fact, we are commanded within the scriptures, have no anxiety about anything at all. Which again, when I first heard that, I was like, oh my goodness, no anxiety at all. When you, you know, your identity and your experience of yourself in the world is often shaped by anxiety, it's hard even to imagine. And so, you know, John is telling us here that there, the demons, you know, can't control us, but they do know our patterns. And they can see, as he says, even here, you know, facial expressions, or even the, or the, they have a penetrating vision to see the face of our soul, if you will. And I think, you know, to be able to gauge our anxiety, our fears, the things that we fear in this world. And so he's very clear with us that we have to enter into the battle in the way that Paul tells us, you know, fight the good fight of faith and enter into it, uh, into that battle fearlessly, knowing who it is that fights with you on that battlefield. And in fact, John will come to a point uh, within the writings. I don't know if it's, he is one little step on man, called unmanly fear unmanly fears. And he talks about being on the battlefield and the, if the enemy is standing over you and it seems as though he's ready to strike the fatal blow, that you are to continue to fight fiercely. And part of the reason one does is because one knows who it is that is fighting with you on the battlefield. So you keep fighting in faith, conscious of the fact that Christ 
is fighting with you and in you, that you carry within you the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the angels, your guardian angel, is with you as well. And so even though we seem as though we're going to lose a particular spiritual battle, we are to fight on. And the image, the other translation from Paulus Press says plucky fighter. And so, you know, both have their own particular connotation, but I always like the plucky fighter because you get the sense of someone who's not willing to be bullied, that is going to go out against anyone who challenges him or tries to bully him and is going to fight fiercely. He's not going to be intimidated. And, uh, and so even if he might be wounded in that battle, he's not going to shrink. He's not going to be any shrinking violent. And, uh, and so John is saying the same thing, you know, that the demons will stand back if they see one who is ready in mind and heart, understanding who they are and what God has given them to enter into that, that battle. Being timid on some level reveals a kind of weakness of faith on our part uh, that we have to strive to overcome. Uh, it's not uh, being timid, uh, and part of it is, I think, we, we, part of our timidity is that we are relying too much upon ourselves, or we only see ourselves. Our fearlessness comes from our resting upon God, and one, when one is resting upon him, one comes to know his strength and grace, and so our intimacy with Christ and the life of virtue itself makes his strength our strength, his virtue our virtue. And so we're not fighting simply in accord with our own will or what virtue we can gain by our, our striving over the course of years. But those who live in this radical intimacy with Christ, and the more that we abandon ourselves to him, the more grace that is given to us. And it is this reality that allows us to fight freely. Sister Mary. I heard that the demons can't read your mind. Is that true? Uh, yes, that's what I, I've heard as well. And in my readings of, of the fathers, you know, in the sense, both in the sense of control us and also reading the mind, no. But what they have the capacity to do in terms, again, in terms of what I read of the fathers, so I don't claim to be the final word on this, is that they, because they are rest, uh, uh, unresting, you know, and ever observant, that they do pick up on our patterns. They can see very quickly the, where our choices are coming from, our decisions are coming from, whether or not we are vigilant. What, what the nature of our discipline is in the spiritual life, where our weaknesses are to be found, what we expose ourselves to. And so in a sense, they can read our minds simply by the fact that they're ever so observant, but not in the sense of knowing what, what we are thinking. And so some of the fathers will counsel not talking openly about certain spiritual fruits or gifts that one has received, or talking openly about one's spiritual life in a public forum. To do that within the context of engaging your spiritual elder, that when we expose ourselves, make ourselves vulnerable, uh, we 
then become uh, uh, more open than to their attacks, that we don't want to aid them, in other words, in that regard, in revealing to them what is going on in our hearts. And uh, we are open books in our day. I mean, people are exposing the deeper truths of their hearts online. And, you know, and they are exposing themselves uh, and opening their minds and their hearts, not simply to the, the Holy Spirit in the sense of doing so in a discerning way, but to any spirit that seems to move them. Because I think when our spiritual life is driven often by uh, the affective level uh, of our, our life as human beings, the emotional level, or by private judgment, that there is this tendency to allow ourselves to be moved on that level too, moved by you know, the spirit of the day or the spirit of a certain set of circumstances. And we can misinterpret that is the movement of, of the spirit of God. And this is why it's kind of dangerous, I think. Uh, we've talked a little bit in the past about this centering prayer movement. And this was one of the concerns that surrounded it, that it was opening people to the experience of contemplative prayer, but disconnected from the fuller spiritual tradition that understands the importance of the ascetic life and the struggle with the passions. And so when a person is opening themselves up in this re regard, but still driven by their own passions, they can be in an undiscerning way, opening themselves up to the influence of the evil spirit. And it's for this reason as well, that the, the fathers would say that theology done outside of the experiential knowledge of God and outside of the ascetical life of the lived life of faith is demonic theology. So simply to treat theology as an academic discipline outside of this experiential knowledge of God that comes through the life of prayer and the ascetical life is foolhardy and dangerous. And so I think this is what, you know, John would want us to know that, you know, getting back to uh, sister's thought here, you know, is this, you know, that can they read our mind? Well, maybe not read our minds, but I, I think, again, if we are living in such a way where we are not guarding our hearts from the influences around us, then they can easily begin to manipulate us. There are a couple comments here. I wonder if Father Rippinger has talked about whether or not demons can read our mind. Uh, I don't know. I haven't read a number of his works. I keep hearing about the centering prayer stuff, but have no idea what it is. Um, centering prayer uh, I'd say probably back in the 80s, it was uh, most at its peak. And, you know, there were some really very good writers. You know, I don't want to demonize it. Uh, uh, Father Keating uh, was one in particular who wrote some really wonderful books. And I've read them myself. And I think it's only over the course of time that I began to understand the critique that there, what he was trying to do was to introduce people to prayer and to foster within them a love of prayer. So I understand really what he's doing, but I think there is this tendency to popularize things in our day and age. And we see it in multiple fields, like pop psychology. You know, everybody sort of mocks that too, you know, after reading, you know, some article, everybody becomes the psychologist and, uh, 
uh, and there can be a kind of danger there because we sort of frame people in a particular way. You know, they are this kind of personality, of course. And uh, so, you know, to engage in a kind of pop spirituality, you know, of introducing people to a certain level of experience without giving due care to their hearts or the healing that is necessary, or as if contemplation in and of itself can be created, is to, I think, to fall more into a kind of Eastern religion mindset where we are seeking to alter our emotional state through various practices. And so something like centering prayer would use things like the Jesus prayer or the name of Jesus or the word love to do exactly that, to create a kind of inner stillness and peace. But is it really the kind of peace that the fathers are talking about in its fullest expression, which is the peace of Christ, the peace of, of the kingdom that comes through intimacy with him and living the life of virtue? Ren Witter, you have your hand up. I love your thought about the problem being over our over-reliance on ourselves. If we are weak, we are weak. That is not the problem because God's grace can work through that. Fear and essentially the lack of trust in God that, expo that, it, that it exposes is the real problem that leaves us vulnerable to the demons. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's, I've been reading, uh, there's uh, Archbishop Martinez. I don't know if any of you have come into contact with him. Uh, he's called, he's written a book called Worshiping, uh, Carol, do you remember the name of the, the title of that book? Worshiping a Hidden God. Worshiping a Hidden God. And I read one of the chapters recently in this, and he said that, you know, our movement in the spiritual life is downward, downward mobility, humility, that we never step off of that path of humility and acknowledging our nothingness, as it were, outside of God. And it is this humility that attracts the gaze of God. And so as long as we stay along that path, it is God who comes to us and then lifts, up, lifts, lifts us up in accord with his will and his wisdom. The moment that we begin to attribute to ourselves virtue, and goodness is the moment that we step off of that path and we become vulnerable uh, to sin, to pride. And so getting back to Ren's comment here, that our weakness is not the problem, you know, because if that's acknowledged in humility, we find ourselves more and more under God's protection and his grace. Again, fear is what leads us, I think, then to try to manage the circumstances in our life to control the things around us, to protect ourselves, and to uh, lessen that experience of vulnerability. And it's a really powerful temptation because you know vulnerability, in particular the vulnerability of divine love, opens us up to being wounded. And, uh, of having that love rejected. And so there's a part of us that obviously fears that. And it's only in this deep trust in the everlasting love of God, of his care for us, of his grace, 
that we are able to let go of that fear of the things of the world and know that God will never abandon us. So come what may in this world, that we are always in the hands of the living and loving God. And so we need fear nothing. No, if he's the Lord of history, as well as the Lord of love, then, and if he's the governor of our lives, what is it that we have to fear? If he is the Lord of life. Okay. So that was, we just finished 22. Is that correct? All right. 23. The Lord designedly makes easy the battles of beginners so that they should not immediately return to the world at the outset. And so rejoice in the Lord always, all ye his, his servants, detecting that this first sign of the master's love for us and a sign that he himself has called us. But when, he, when God sees courageous souls, he has often been known to act in this way. He lets them have conflicts from the very beginning in order to crown them the sooner. But the Lord hides the difficulty of this contest from those in the world. For if they were to know, no one would renounce the world. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You've duped me, O oh Lord. <laughs> I've probably said that a million times. Uh, since the moment of my ordination. You duped me, O oh Lord, and I allowed myself to be duped. Uh, but it's an interesting little idea here that, you know, by design, you know, in that struggle with passions as we enter into the spiritual life, we could easily fall into despondency, despair. When we see and begin to see our weakness or the grip that the passions have upon us, we need the strength and the grace of God and the encouragement of others uh, in order to live the life. And that God will often protect us more uh, than we realize in order to help keep us from becoming discouraged. That if uh, we are really having to do battle uh, and engage in this fierce battle with the evil one, that we might run back to the world or give up, throw our hands up. Uh, but when he sees a courageous soul, you know, this plucky fighter, one who desires him, who trusts in him, then he will allow him, not as punishment, but as a way of uh, perfecting the virtue within him, allow him to experience conflicts in one way or another that test that, that virtue. And this is important because I think sometimes the question will often arise, you know, why has God abandoned me? Or why, is, why does God allow this to happen to me if God loves me and, you know, he wouldn't allow these things to happen to me? And uh, we can feel that God is absent from us in our trials. And so, you know, I think John is framing, trying to frame things for us in a certain way that, you know, many of the trials that we experience in this life are meant to draw us on to greater intimacy with him to perfect that virtue in order that we might give ourselves over to him more fully. And uh, it's not easy, you know, certainly to know conflict or to know trials or tribulation. Uh, but within this world, this is what we are going to experience. Any, Rachel. Mm-hmm. 
Rachel. There you go. If not only other people, but demons can read us, so to speak, in order to attack us and pull us away from God through fear, can it be that when one by grace, little by little, comes closer to God, in turn, that person, because of their close proximity to Christ, can ward off attacks? Where a person is able to discern more, oops, sorry, discern more easily because they have kept the water still. I think of saints like St. Maximus, where many were against him and he kept pressing on, able to discern and not abandon Christ. Yes, I think exactly. I think the, the more one is confident in God and trust in God, there is a kind of stillness of mind and heart that exists and living in the depths, the water is still. And so all might be chaotic around one. Uh, and yet we're, we, the person is living in this intimacy with God that can make their way through that without losing their way or find themselves reacting to what others are doing around them or wondering why they're doing things or questioning why they're doing things or being upset by why they're doing certain things or why they're treating us in a particular way. You know, I think the further one progresses along the spiritual life, the freer one becomes from being driven by that. If our desire is for Christ to do his will, to know him, then we are going to guard the heart in regards to the, the curiosity about those things or complaining about those things or trying uh, to manage them in one way or another, to be understood or to be accepted or to have what we do be, be praised or acknowledged for its value. I think when we are able simply to attend to doing the will of God and being faithful, then one is liberated from those kinds of attacks that the demons would typically wage against us to, to foment discontent and strife between uh, individuals. You know, think about how misunderstandings arise and, and resentments and then outright hatred. You know, most often it's because we have not guarded our hearts to that extent and that we interpret things in a certain way or we are responding uh, in this reactive way to protect something that we see as essential to our identity. And I don't wanna make this sound easy. You know, I, I think it is a, a very challenging thing to, to live with this level of trust in God and abandonment to him, to be so confident in his love that we can make our way through those things. And it still doesn't mean they, they uh, wouldn't disturb us. I think, you know, we aren't, again, stoics. And so we can experience the harshness of another or a set of circumstances and feel the pain of that, but still not react to it in a way that where we might be led into sin. Any comments or questions on this paragraph? This is a challenging one. Sam Rodriguez. Okay, did you already? Okay, when our sufferings and trials seem to pull us farther from God and hurt our relationships with God, is it perhaps our own preconceived notion of what is good thing to happen versus a bad 
accepting ultimately the source of that wedge. Given that any sufferings or trials that God permits, we can trust that he has covered them all in a greater good. Yes, you know, I, again, you know, there are certain, I think, um, circumstances in our life where we experience the consequence of our sin. And uh, if you remember John Paul saying, you know, sin is its own punishment. And so sometimes we can experience trials and tribulations because of our turning away from God. And at times he will allow us to experience that uh, reality in its fullness. Again, not to punish us, but in order that we might turn away from it and turn back to the path that would be healing. Uh, but yes, I, you know, I agree with what you're saying here that we often have preconceived notions about what is good and what is a bad thing uh, that manifests itself in our life. Uh, and so say if we work really hard and we have a good idea and we are pursuing it and we're invested in it and it comes to naught, you know, or that there's some impediment put in the way that keeps it coming to, from coming to fruition, we might think in some way that somebody became an obstacle to that or some good was derailed. And so something in my life became messed up because of it. And we might find ourselves mourning over, over it. When in reality, reality, it might be God in his grace protecting us from something far greater or seeking to produce something within us that is far greater. That if we were to go down a certain path, we might be filled with pride or it might pull us away from our fundamental vocation because we get wrapped up within it. Uh, and so we have to be very careful in, in our discernment of those realities of our life. And this is, again, I think why having a spiritual elder or spiritual director it is so important because often Christ will draw us very deeply into the Paschal mystery, into the mystery of the cross itself. And again, if you've ever read some of the writings of the Passionist, of Paul of the Cross uh, in particular, uh, there's a real clarity there that, you know, being part of the body of Christ and living in this intimacy with him is to be drawn intimately into the, the passion itself. And it touches so many parts of our life that it is a redemptive reality for ourselves, but also for the world to pour ourselves out, to give ourselves to God and others in love. And that there is a self-sacrificing nature to that. And at times we are not going to be able to see clearly things that are happening in our life, you know, that there can be an illness that we experience that disrupts our life for a period of time. Or maybe we've pursued something, building something over the time, the time that we felt was good, but it falls apart right before our eyes, or we thought we saw the mean the reality of certain circumstances and judged certain circumstances correctly and maybe we did this is the, the difficult thing and shows the limitations of our own vision that maybe we did see the truth about cer certain circumstances but the reality is we don't see the full truth we don't have the expansive vision of god himself and so no matter how fully we think we see something our judgment can be diminished for one reason or another. We don't see all ends. And so helping some, having somebody help us navigate that 
and to navigate, especially through the deepening of our prayer of, you know, searching our own motives, what's going on within our own hearts in the face of those things becomes essential. And this again, you know, I think, you know, the influence of the demons has come up, you know, a couple of times during the group tonight. I think this is often where uh, they, if, to use a vernacular phrase, can play us, you know, that with this pr prideful judgment of certain scenarios, we, we think we see the truth of it or the truth of another person, what, what they're doing and why they're saying it or doing it. And we will move to a very quick judgment about it. And we end up in our reaction to it, giving way to resentment, anger, or overt hostility. When really our, the first thing that we should do is turn, turn to God, to allow his stillness to emerge within us and to allow him to speak a word within our heart that we need to hear. And I've mentioned, you know, Cardinal Seurat and his relying upon the Carthusian spirituality and the importance of silence in the spiritual life, of allowing God to speak a word that is equal to himself, to allow God to speak to those, to our heart in, in the very depths, that we would be listening to what God is saying to us in those scenarios, not what our emotions or not even what our reason is telling us, and but rather what, what God is telling us in and through these things. And so Sam questions here, you know, is, are there preconceived notions that we can have? Yes. And they can lead us, lead us astray. And th that brings us back, I think, to everything that we're reading here is, you know, trying to overcome the passions to order our desires toward God, to foster a kind of stillness of mind and heart, to pray constantly, to live in this constant communion with God in order that we might be listening to him, allowing him to guide us. And that essentially is this path of humility. And so all of our asceticism is to be leading us along that path to a humble love for God, as, as, as seeking to be obedient to his will, to follow his will and discern it as much as we can. And if our asceticism doesn't lead us there, then, you know, it's simply going to be, become another vehicle of distortion. And so that, that's why I think we find in these great ascetical writers that language of desire for God, you know, because again, you know, the, the word desire meaning incomplete sense of incompleteness, uh, that it's only in and through this relationship with God that we are made complete, that we are made full. And, uh, and so the ascetical life is to draw us more and more deeply into that life. And so lacking desire, or if it's self-focused, uh, it can almost lead us into greater darkness than before having entered into it. If you've ever read the Brothers Karamazov, you know, that little section on Father Zosima and the priest that sort of dislikes him, that great ascetic, you see it very clearly in him. Okay, so that brings us to 841. And uh, 
Always, as always, great questions, comments, and uh, you know, feel free to th throw a couple more my way if you want this week, or or again to send me a note. I've received a couple notes about the the new format, and so I'm open again to hearing more more of your thoughts on it. So don't hesitate to let me know what you think. Okay, so why don't we close there? As always, with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. Now, may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.